All right, Trinity Church, how are you doing today? Good to see you. Great day. We're so glad you're here. This is like a wet holiday weekend, and you are here. So we're grateful to see you today. I want to welcome you. My name is Todd Arnett, the lead pastor here at Trinity Church, and just a privilege. We are uh, kind of working our way through a series. We're going to wrap it up today. If you have notes in your worship folder, we're going to take those out. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in James chapter 1. I want to apologize. I have a bit of a raspy voice. I was at the UCLA-USC basketball game last night. And there was a lot to cheer about, so just leave it at that. Um, and if you're frustrated by that, just know that you beat us most times, so stop, okay? We'll be fine. Um, but anyway, so we're glad to get to be here today. We are going to begin next weekend a brand new series, and we're going to kick that off together. Excited to have that new op- opportunity with you as we kind of actually are beginning to look forward to Easter. That's the mode we're going to be in, and we'll start that all together off next weekend. We have been in a series called 2020. And I've really loved the tagline for this, clarity when you need it most. And what we're learning is in the book of James, in this first chapter that we're mostly kind of exploring, we won't finish it all, what we're learning is, is that James is not trying to solve your problems. What James is trying to do is to try to give you clarity so that in advance, in the midst of the problems that you face, you'll know how to think better, you'll know how to act better, you'll know how to live in a way that's pleasing to God. And that's really been what we've been learning. It has been so incredibly applicable. Every week we're looking at something that we're going, yep, I'm dealing with that. And today will be not unlike the others. We've looked at things like purposeful pain, sincere wisdom, genuine identity, good suffering, true temptation. And last weekend we talked about heavenly or fatherly gifts. And so today we wrap this series up with this concept. What we're calling it is unproductive anger. Meaning that anger does not produce what God is after in our lives. And the great news is we're not just going to hear about that, that reality, the, the negative of that. We'll hear the positive. What does God want us to do and what is a better way to live? So I'm excited to get in there and explore that with you today. Our now what statement, just kind of have we had that as the beginning of our mindset as we dive into this. Your anger won't accomplish what God desires. Instead, hear God's word and then do it. It's a lot simpler to say than to do, I know. But let's dive in. First off in your notes today, quick to listen plus slow to speak plus slow to become angry. That is the equation of God-honoring responses. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. That is the equation for God-honoring responses. And what we'll see in this first part of our, our passage today, these adverbs, adverbs describe a verb. They define a verb. And so quick, slow, and slow are going to be very important as we dive in. James chapter 1, verse 19 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Here we've seen it. This is now the third time in just about 19 verses that James has said, brothers and sisters. He's reminding that his audience, he's not writing to readers. He's writing to fellow family, to people who get it. He's including himself among the mix. I'm not some kind of like guy up in the ivory tower writing this to you. You're a brother and sister to me. And as a result of that, we're all in this together. Just when I said that, all I could think of was High School Musical, right? That's all I could do. So good. (laughs) And right here, they're like, so we're like, yeah. It's like, that's stupid. So whatever. I just looked your way. I just looked your way, so. Um, 
So here's the interesting thing, though. Though he begins that way, then immediately says everyone. So reminding himself, we're talking to brothers and sisters, people who are in the family of God because of what our brother Jesus did for us. That's what brings us unity. That's what gives us the ability to call each other brother and sister. But now he pulls back and he says, everyone ought to live this way. So meaning this is truth. This is wisdom. This is for every person on the planet. That we ought to be a people who are defined by these things. We said a few weeks ago, one of the commentators says that James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. Really well said. And, and so James is constantly putting forth the wise way to live in the circumstances that we face. So he's going to share today some very powerful, what I call interpersonal tools. And I want you to pay attention because this is going to help all of us. First off, he says that we need to be people who are quick to listen. Quick to listen. When you think about that, even as I begin to describe that, begin to put a name and a face. Begin to put a name and face to your mind. Who is someone in your world that you would say, that person very consistently is quick to listen? And as you're thinking of them, let me give you some more definitions that, that just continue to support that idea. These are people who others feel inherently valued around because they feel heard. They feel valued by what they have to say. It's a powerful thing. And, and as that results, they also have this built-in humility that says, I'm going to pay attention to you. I actually want to learn what you're saying and learn how to understand what, where you're coming from. And as you think about that kind of person, you know you enjoy being around them. You enjoy spending time with them because every time in this conversation, at some point or all throughout, you feel valued because they actively listen to you. They ask questions that are these great paraphrasing, summarizing questions. So is what I heard you say? When that happened, how did you feel? Those are the kinds of things that they kind of push on. And it's such a cool idea. Francis of Assisi put it this way. He said, oh Lord, may I seek to understand more than to be understood. That to me is the posture that so well represents someone who is quick to listen. I care most about getting you. I care most about understanding where you're coming from much more than I even care how much you understand where I'm coming from. I value that above, above myself. Proverbs, the book is, um, We've known this. It's written from the perspective of a parent to a child, of a father to a son. And so consistently through Proverbs, if you were to do a word study in the book of Proverbs, you'd see dozens of times where the word listen is used. A father saying, hey, don't miss this. Pay attention. Listen to what I say. And even look at this, the very fifth verse in the entire book. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. Be a person, the Bible teaches us, be a person who values others, be a person who's a lifelong learner and wants to listen to what others are saying. Secondly, James tells the people to be slow to speak. Be someone who's slow to speak. This is very much in tandem with the other idea. Quick to listen, slow to speak, they really go hand in hand. Because being slow to speak means I'm not going to be someone who just brashly blurts out things. In the very same way we did a minute ago, think of someone who is like this. Someone whose words are thoughtful. Someone who thinks before they talk. That's what this is talking about. Be someone who is slow to speak. And the reason why people are, who are like this 
are like this is because they realize that either A, if they don't have a good context for what is going on, they're going to speak in such a way that's going to hurt feelings, in such a way that will be inaccurate. Or if they just speak because they're emotionally invested in what's going on, so often we speak out of our emotions, all kinds of crazy gushes out of our mouths. Later on, we not only feel regret over, but ultimately can be very damaging to relationships. You know, it's very often that the things you remember are cutting words by other people. James is going to speak much more throughout his letter of the power of the tongue. And so people who are slow to speak, they think about this. Here's what I love. It's in your notes. Your human anatomy should help you with this. You have two ears, one mouth. You should listen twice as much as you talk. That's a really good principle. Listen twice as much as you talk. And this, this would see, James would say that. This is what we're talking about. Be someone who's an active listener. Be someone who doesn't just keep talking all the time or just blurts out thoughtless ideas. Be slow to speak. Sometimes they don't even have to speak up. They can let a whole conversation go and just kind of take it in. Because what they've learned is the power of what I call the E.F. Hutton principle. Right? I grew up in the 70s and 80s. I can't help it. So you know the phrase, when E.F. When e. Hutton talks... People listen, okay? If you're 30 and younger, you have no idea what I'm talking about. I apologize, okay? But uh, your parents and grandparents do. And so, and here's this idea is that it it was this great series of commercials in the 70s where this investor, I was was watching him this week to be reminded of him. This guy's out for a jog with his friend and he's like, well, my my investor is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, everyone around them stops, listens in because they want to know what kind of advice this guy's going to give. That's people who are slow to speak. Their words carry a lot of weight because when they speak, it matters and people around them know that. The writer of Proverbs, he put it this way, Proverbs twenty nine twenty. Do you see someone who speaks in haste, someone who's not slow to speak? Watch this. There is more hope for a fool than for them. So a powerful principle that we're learning being slow to speak. Thirdly, we're directed to be slow to become angry. Now, it was pretty safe until we got here. Right? We're talking about, oh, you know, Todd, I'm, I'm not always the best listener. I can grow in that. Or, oh, Todd, sometimes I speak before I think. I need to grow in that. But now that we're talking about anger, now Todd is meddling. It's like, oh, don't, let's not talk about that. And the reason why this is such a, a difficult source of, or subject to talk about is because all of us, to some degree, are dealing with unhealthy forms of anger. And some of us, this absolutely characterizes your life. So it's not me. It's the book of James that's meddling today. But I want you to see this as we walk forward. I think I have, here's what I want you to hear from the very beginning. If you're someone here and you struggle with anger, you already knew it was damaging and destructive before you ever walked in the room. I don't have to tell you that. What I want to tell you as we look at James today is I want to be able to be helpful. And I want to give you hope. Because I believe if you take these principles we're looking at today, you actually can find true change related to being person, a person who's typically characterized by anger. So let's see what he says. When we look at this, we see this, uh, this characteristic is so powerful because not only is it so obvious, but it's so caustic. This attribute, this characteristic breaks relationships. Some of the reasons that you're not talking to people is because of your anger. And that's a powerful thing we have to take into effect. We are an angry people. As a culture, the United States of America, we have such a proliferation of anger, it's so vast that it even affects our pets. We have angry birds. 
You knew I had to go there. You knew it. Come on. How can you miss that? This is what I tell people when we're talking about anger. I tell them, you know, in my life, I wasn't always an angry person until I had kids. Now, to be fair, I just still don't think I'm, I'm overly uh, characterized that, that. But I will tell you this. For many of us, that's actually true. Meaning this. There was an event. There was a person. There was an experience that you had. And you would say, if you could be honest, I really wasn't characterized by anger until. Until that thing happened. Until that person entered your life. Until that experience came to you. Then not only did you have a problem with anger, but you continue to do so today. Even if it's not about that original thing, it has just set something in motion in you. And you come in today and you recognize it needs to change. And I want to help you with that. What's fascinating is this kind of anger that you experience, it's like looking at a very calm lake, the kind of lake you want to water ski on or wakeboard on. You just It's beautiful. It's glass. But you know right underneath it, lurking underneath, is this explosive anger that the minute that something happens just blows through the top and all of a sudden disrupts everything. That's how that works. I want to define, begin today by defining what the Bible says in this particular passage, what anger is. Look in your notes. Biblically, the Greek word translated as anger means swelling up to constitutionally oppose. You read that, you kind of go, what does it even mean? Look at the next part. To steadfastly oppose someone or something based on extended personal exposure. Okay, so we're talking about this particular passage. And by the way, there's other words that are translated anger in the Bible. This particular one means this. So it's the concept of that over time having consistent connections or issues with this person, with this experience, with this thing causes me to swell up, causes me to grow. It's kind of like that idea we talk about. I love doing stuff with couples on marriage stuff. And it's that idea that, um, you know, here you are as a couple and there's been stuff that has been boiling within and, and it just keeps, you're just stuffing it down. You're not dealing until finally you're going out to dinner and you ask your wife, you're like, Hey, where do you want to go? And she's like, I don't care. Where do you want to go? And you go, well, we've done this like how many times before? So you're like, I'll just say something. You know, let's go to Mexican food. Mexican food? You always pick Mexican food. You're driving me crazy. (laughs) And you just kind of look her. And by the way, I'm not overly characterizing wives as this way, by the way. Husbands do the same. But the point is you look at her and you go, I think there's something more going on than Mexican food. (laughs) Right? And it's because Vesuvius has been building and building and now the portal has finally opened. And so the reality is that's kind of what this anger is talking about. It's like you didn't get angry when your daughter left her wet towel on the carpeted floor in her room the first time. Or maybe even up to the fourth time. And every time you correct her, no, no, we can't do that. Your towel gets moldy. It it ruins the carpet. You got to hang it up. But I'm telling you, by the time you got to that fifth time, and you told her, and you've walked her through it. You've even helped her walk over, hanging on. Now the fifth time, you're going, you know what? She doesn't care what I say. I'm over it. And, and you are swelling up with wrath towards her behavior and even her towards her. I've heard this. Anyways, I don't know if that happens. but <laughs> So let's imagine that you're a person here today and you struggle with anger. Simple question. I'm not going to presuppose you want to change. Because I, I try to not assume things. But let's say you did. Let's say you'd say, God, I've been thinking about this, praying about this, trying to do something with this for a long time. I haven't seen change. I really want to change. Is there any hope? One line of thinking would suggest that 
your anger toward people or toward circumstances would totally just go away if you could get what you want. Like even like a home loan. Here's what I mean. The uncertainty of getting a home loan made Paul irritable. Then he went to Washington Mutual. Thanks to their flexible lending rules, Paul got a quick approval. Now he's always in a great mood. Hey! <laughs> Oops, my bad. No problem. Ah, guess I'm having tea. <laughs> Congratulations on your new home, Paul. Glad we could make your day. <laughs> you got me. <laughs> All right, that's, that's probably not very realistic, right? Get a home loan, everything's happy in your world. But here's the thing. Here's what I want you to catch today, and this has been so helpful. We don't, we don't have time. Like, this today is not like an anger seminar. We, we are in the midst of a study. It's not a time where I'm counseling in my office and we can unpack kind of all the issues. But just for the little bit of time, I want you to grab something that, to me, has been so amazingly helpful in my own life and to the people that I've talked with. Much of your anger, much of my anger, stems from unmet expectations. I thought it was going to go X, it went Y, and I'm mad. And as a result of that, then we can unpack something. And I want to share with you to me, which has been a very kind of pivotal, eye-opening truth, and it's this, it's in your notes. Anger is a secondary emotion. Anger is a secondary emotion, meaning that you aren't angry first, But you become angry after. And I left that blank blank in your notes for a reason. Because maybe you become angry after you feel scared. Maybe you become angry after you feel left out. Maybe you become angry after you feel humiliated. After you feel disappointed. After you feel disregarded. After your daughter continues to leave the wet towel on the floor for the 37th time. Again, I... Just people talk to me about stuff like that. Now, here's the thing. This is what's problematic. Often people think, I'm just angry. And I'm here to tell you, no, you're not. You're angry after something else. You're something first and then you're angry. Because what it begins to do, it takes the scales off your eyes and realizes, oh, there's something that actually happens first. I have a a true legitimate emotion that then very quickly, sometimes the time between what you first felt and when you become angry can be milliseconds. But nonetheless, there's something that happens first. And here's what I'm here to say today. Anger is like a weed. And what's happened is for many of us who are really wanting to try to change, that want to not have anger completely consume us, you're only looking at the top portion. And you've done some things and you keep tearing off the top of the weed, but you're never addressing the root. I'm here to say, if you would begin looking upstream to change analogies, if you'd look upstream and realize, what am I feeling first that then is leading to anger? I think you'd find some real change. I think you'd find some real transformation. Were you scared? Did you feel left out? Were you humiliated? Were you disappointed? Were you disregarded? Discovering that original emotion and then beginning to carefully, prayerfully address that. And you can't do this when you're mad. You can't do this when you're angry. You have to get a calm head. It's got to be later on. But when things have cooled off, and you might even need someone to draw this out of you. You might need to have a conversation. You might need to literally take a pen and paper and write it down. Or for people who don't know what those are, get on your computer. 
but, but do something to process your thoughts and ask the question, I blew up at my kids. I blew up at my spouse. I blew up at my neighbor. What was going on? And we begin to realize, yes, I was angry, but after something else. And that kind of clarity now gives you something to do. Now we can begin to address the root that's under the ground that I never seem to pay attention to. And some really good things can happen. I can also begin to do this. God, I have very little travel time, as it were, from emotion A to anger. Help me increase the travel time. Help there be barriers that don't just take me from A to anger. But instead, there's some things that I've actually done some self-discipline. I've put up some barriers that help me calm down. It's your advice to your kids. Count to three before you react. You might need to count to 37. Whatever it takes, do some things to slow down the process. After you first initially understood what is it that starts. Look what James's purpose statement of this whole idea is about. What's his so what? Why is the anger talk so important? Look at Because human anger does not produce, cannot produce the righteousness that God desires. Look what James will say later in the very same letter. James chapter 3 verse 18. Peacemakers. Peacemakers who sow in peace, watch, reap a harvest of righteousness. Righteousness is never going to be produced through anger, but righteousness can be produced through those who make peace. And isn't it interesting? That's the biggest problem with anger. It isolates you from other people. It's just the opposite of being a peacemaker, someone who finds ways to build bridges. Your anger will never be a mechanism by which God's desired outcome, his right ways, his righteousness will ever be achieved. Whether that's some form, maybe you're here today, it's like, Todd, I don't get angry at people. I just get angry at the state of things. I have righteous indignation, the fact I live in a post-Christian culture in America. And I'm here to tell you, you're not telling me anything new that you live in a post-Christian culture, but getting angry about it, number one, it doesn't matter what I think, but more importantly, James says, that's not going to produce anything. That's not going to produce the righteousness of God, just getting mad. So there's got to be a better way. Whether you think that your anger expressed towards your spouse, towards your kids, towards your boss, towards your neighbors, if you think that's going to ever be anything productive, James says, think again. It doesn't. It doesn't produce the right things that God is after. I want you to consider this today. If you would say, Todd, this is a struggle. This is a thing that's really challenging to me. I want you to consider what kind of an impact you finding, growing in, transformation, what kind of transformation in your life in this area of anger, think what kind of an impact that would make in the lives of people you do life with. You see, anger has not been something you've been able to hide. You've been able to hide it from me. You've been able to hide it from other church leaders, but you cannot hide it from your spouse. You cannot hide it from your kids. You cannot hide it from the people you do life with. Why? Because they're the recipients or they're watching you unload on someone else. This is very clear to them that this is an issue. And what kind of impact would it be on them if you would take seriously two different things? Number one, if you'd begin by asking their forgiveness. You see, people who are angry and explode on people, it is very, very hard, I have found, for them to ask for forgiveness. For two reasons. Number one, because that's what anger is doing is it's pushing people away 
It's hard to come back to them. But number two, it's humiliating. You Watch this. I've, I've told so many couples in my office who've had a, a, just like this angry tirade between each other. I've said, I'm not trying to be mean, but you're acting like three-year-olds. I know you don't want to act like that. I know you don't think that's productive, but that's exactly what you're doing. It's humiliating when we do this. So therefore, we're embarrassed to come back. But I will tell you, there is power in asking people to forgive you. And by the way, you never heard me say telling them you're sorry. Telling them you're sorry simply says you feel bad. Asking for forgiveness means I know there's a problem in the relationship as a result of my actions. Would you forgive me? It is powerful if you would do that. Secondly, another thing that's true is if you would take seriously this idea of going upstream of taking time to consider what is it that is the catalyst for these angry explosions and prayerfully, with help, asking, God, how do I begin to address those rather than just keep pulling off the top of the weed? How do I begin to get serious about help? Ask God to help you deal better with these initial emotions and ask him to introduce other areas in your life, the areas we looked at a minute ago, being quick to listen, being slow to speak, those help you become slow to be angry. Watch and see how your relational world reacts to the transformation they see in you. Remember we just said a minute ago, the people in your life, they know you're angry. You can't hide it from them. Watch this. As they begin to see God transforming your anger from the inside out, you know they're going to notice. They will absolutely notice. And they might not say anything the first time. They might not say anything for weeks or months. But at some point, they're going to tell you, that used to make you crazy mad. What's going on? I love, I love what this is. Whatever this is, let's do more of it. And the great news is, you'll have no one else to thank but God. God's doing something to me. I'm not passively sitting on the couch. He's, he's not just kind of, you know, presto changeo, but I'm joining him in a partnership and he is transforming the way I react. How incredibly cool is that? People that you have wanted to see Jesus in your life, even though you would have never chosen this avenue, God let it be because my anger is so explosive that then they'll see Jesus through me because of the change. But when they do, you will be quick to tell them. It's just because of what Jesus has done in me. I have no other way to explain what's happening. How exciting is that? We have to remember how this whole passage began. James's first words, take note of this. He's saying, hey, pay careful attention to what I'm about to tell you. And then he uses an imperative verb. You ought to be. Everyone should be. Everyone is called to be. So this is where we've made much of imperative verbs. When God is giving you a directive, a command, he's not giving you something out of reach. It might be out of reach where you stand today, but it's not something unattainable. So this imperative verb is for everyone in the room. God intends for me to be a person characterized by being quick to listen, characterized by being slow to speak, characterized by being slow to become angry. And as we'll see further today, don't use the cop-outs. Don't use the cop-out of I'm just not a great listener, or I speak without thinking, or I'm just angry. Deal with it. Here's a simple question. Who do you know who doesn't say that stuff? We should be different. There is the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. You have the written word of God in your hands. This should be transformative in our lives. We're not like everyone else. And that's something real exciting to see. 
Following Jesus, watch this, is not about adding some new belief structure to your faulty way of living and thinking that God is good with that. In your notes, following Jesus is not primarily about more information, but about transformation. He is up to something. He wants to change you. He wants to change me, and that should excite you. That should get you excited. God, I don't want to be the same person I've been. I don't want to be characterized by living out of line with your design. I want to be more like Jesus. That's what discipleship is. Following Jesus closer than I did before. And I get stoked to think about what God's going to keep doing in our lives as a result. Number two, transformation includes both disengaging and engaging. Transformation includes both disengaging and engaging. We said it a minute ago. God's not going to change you by you sitting on the couch and just asking him to. There's a partnership. Here's what you're called to do. James 1.21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. This verse begins with the word therefore. Whenever we see the word therefore in the Bible, we need to ask, what's it there for? And what James is doing, he's making this cumulative statement from what he's just said. Being people that are called to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. As a result of that, here's how that transformation begins. It begins initially by disengaging. This is the same kind of wordage, the same thinking we looked at back in Ephesians 4. If you remember in Ephesians 4, we saw two very powerful Greek words. One is the idea of taking off clothing with the intent of exchanging it for new disengaging and engaging. That is the the image that is right here as well in James chapter one. And he talks about the clothing as it were as the morally filthy evil set of clothes. And here's what's so great. God is so wise. Look at the genius of this. He doesn't say first start doing things that are in line with me. He says first get rid of the stuff that's not. You did this when you were seven. You'd been out playing. You were all kind of nasty and dirty and gross. And you had somewhere to be. Your family was going to a wedding. Your family was going to some event. And you walk in the door and your parents are like, oh my goodness, you need to go bathe and get changed so we can go. And you're like, no, I'm just going to put on my good clothes over these. We're fine. And they're like, uh-uh, not on this planet. And you realize that's a horrible idea to just take what's already gross there and just put something on top of it to think you're covering it up. You're obviously not. Take the first set off, the things around our lives that, and it's so that word so prevalent means we're just surrounded by filth. Through the lens of looking at God's holiness and righteousness, we go, we'd have to agree with that. It's not us getting mad at the world around us. It's just saying, you know what? That is really true. We live in, as a culture, in opposition to God's ways. So now what do we do as a result? We change that kind of thinking, that kind of attitude, that kind of lifestyle We take that off and look at the second thing we do. We put on. We humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. I love the word humility or the word here humble. Sometimes I think it's very misunderstood. A lot of people think, well, there's a real humble person. And what would they mean by that? Well, they they dress in a real drab way. They have their face down on the floor. You know, they never look you in the eye. And then they just go, man, I'm really horrible. What a humble person. I'd say that's a self-loathing person is what that sounds like. Because humility has nothing to do with that. Here's, and humility is not about thinking low of yourself. Watch this. Humility is just thinking accurately of yourself. Humility is looking in the mirror. And just going, here's the reality. And when I look in relationship to who I am, to who God is, that he is perfect, that he is righteous, that he is holy, that he is loving, that he is kind, I go, I'm not those. 
So in humility, as a result of the truth, I recognize, God, I need so desperately to be more like you. And that's what humility is. It's just a clear picture of reality. Swindoll said it well. He said, filthiness in life plugs our hearing. Wickedness slows our response time. Pride keeps us from exposing our true selves to the light of the word. But humility means submitting to whatever the word has to tell us. James here, and using this, this idea of the word implanted within you, he's alluding back to James 1.18 we looked at last week. That word was the vehicle, the entrance into the family of God to be the first fruits of all that he created. To be in the family, being birthed into the family of God came through the word of truth. That word of truth is the same one he's talking about here. Question for us today, is the word of God transformative in you? And if not, Watch us as we close today. Here's why. Number three in your notes, self-deception arises from hearing and yet not doing the word of God. Self-deception arises from hearing yet not doing the word of God. This is probably the hallmark verse of the entire book of James. The book of James can really be summarized by this attitude. It says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. When I was growing up, I, uh, my churches used a different translation of the New Testament. It was, you remember this, don't be hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. And I was thinking about that as I was preparing for this weekend. Be doers. When in your life do you ever use that word? You know, I'm going to go out and be a doer today. They look at you like, okay, what's that? I'm going to do stuff. Oh, good. I hope so. You tell your kids, hey, go be a doer. Like, Okay. I guess I do, you know, what does that really mean? And, and really the word means exactly what it sounds like. I'm not just going to be someone content to know things. I'm going to be someone who actually puts them into motion. My faith is going to find feet. It's going to land. It's going to land in my life. That's what James is after. Why it's such really the key verse of this entire book. God is not impressed with your knowledge of him or what he says. He's looking for doers, people like you and me who would take these truths and put them into motion every day. By the way, this is nothing new. Think of it this way. All throughout the former covenant in the Old Testament, prophets would speak harshly against the people of Israel. Jesus in the Gospels, he would say the same kinds of things. The people of Israel would feel so proud they have the word of God. We as a people, we have received the truth of God and they'd rally around the fact they have the law. And the law was much more than a list of rules. The law was the best way to live between creator and between each other. It was a good thing to be grateful for. But the problem is, is that the prophets and Jesus would say, you're rallying around the fact that you have a law that you don't do. Having the law is not the point. Doing the law is the point. Living according to it. So this is just James taking the same idea and pushing it forward. What we're called to do is a transformative process where we partner with God. God is going to keep his promise. He's going to provide for you truth. He's going to provide for you power. He's going to provide for you the presence of his spirit in your life. He'll do his part. The simple question is, will you respond and do your part of the equation? We saw earlier today, this is not a suggestion. This is not something to engage when it's relatively easy or convenient, but something where my faith lands. It might seem totally preposterous if you're listening today and kind of going, well, that's not, does that really happen? 
Do people really hear the truth of God's word and just kind of go, well, that's neat, but I'm not going to do anything with it? And the sad thing is it happens way too much. In some cases, it's more the norm. Ask these questions about yourself. Don't look out the window. Look in the mirror. When you consider the Bible to be directive for other people, oh, man, does she ever need to hear this? Oh, man, wish my kids were here today. Oh, man, you know, all that. But failing to consider what God wants to authoritatively communicate to you. When you consider the Bible to be incredibly interesting, and yet its truths don't seem to ever flesh out in your own life. Jesus didn't come to write an interesting book. He came to write a book that we would live according to. When you have great degrees of Bible knowledge, you know the Bible, you know so much about the Bible, but there are glaring inconsistencies in your life that everyone in your relational world knows and they've known it for years. And you just keep chalking it up to everybody has their issues. I would say then there's a problem. Here's what James calls this whole thing, the I hear it but I don't live it approach to life. He calls it being self-deceived. Those aren't my words, they're his. You are self-deceived. You think that you keep hearing the truth of God but not doing anything about it and that somehow helps you. No, it doesn't. And the biggest problem with this whole problem is that we've somehow become conditioned to think that this lack of obedient living to God's truth is somehow okay. It's somehow acceptable. Probably one of my favorite books is John Ortberg's book, The Life You Always Wanted. It's my favorite book on, on spiritual disciplines by far. And this is how uh, Ortberg puts it. I thought we'd finish our time with this today. He says this. This is entitled, The Man Who Never Changed. Hank, as we'll call him, was a cranky guy. He did not smile easily, and when he did, the smile often had a cruel edge to it, coming at someone's expense. He had a knack for, listen to this line. He had a knack for discovering islands of bad news and oceans of happiness. That's so well said. He would always find a cloud where others saw a silver lining. Hank rarely affirmed anyone. He operated under the assumption that if you compliment someone, it might lead to a swelled head. So he worked hard to make sure everyone stayed humble. His was a ministry of cranial downsizing. His native tongue was complaint. He carried judgment and disapproval the way a prisoner carries a ball and chain. Although he went to church his whole life, watch that, he went to church his whole life, he was never unshackled. A deacon in the church asked him one day, Hank, are you happy? Hank paused to reflect and then replied without smiling, yeah. Well, tell your face. (laughs) Tell your face, the deacon said. But so far as anybody knows, Hank's face never got the memo. Hank could not effectively love his wife or his children or the people outside of his family. He was easily irritated. He had little use for the poor and casual contempt for those whose accents or skin pigment differed from his own. Whatever capacity he once might have had for joy or wonder or gratitude atrophied. He critiqued and judged and complained, and his soul got smaller each year. Hank was not changing. He was once a cranky young guy, and he grew up to be a cranky old guy. But even more troubling than his lack of change, watch this, was the fact that nobody was surprised by it. It was as if everyone simply expected that his soul would remain withered and sour year after year, decade after decade. No one seemed bothered by the condition. It was not an anomaly that caused head-scratching bewilderment. No church consultants were called in. No emergency meetings were held to probe the strange case of this person who followed the church's general guidelines for spiritual life 
yet was untransformed. The church staff did have some expectations, however. We expected that Hank would affirm certain religious beliefs. We expected that he would attend services, read the Bible, support the church financially, pray regularly, and avoid certain sins. But here's what we didn't expect, and watch this. We didn't expect that he would progressively become the way Jesus would be if he were in Hank's place. We didn't assume that each year would find him a a more compassionate, joyful, gracious, winsome personality. We didn't anticipate that he was on the way to becoming a source of delight and courtesy who overflowed with rivers of living water. So we were not shocked when it didn't happen. We would have been surprised if it did. So we don't want to be people like Hank. And it takes a lot more than just I don't want to be. It takes actively taking the word of God and saying, God, this is something I need to find feet in my life this week. I want to be a person who plays out my role of living according to whose I am. And I want to encourage you today, it can happen. You can be changed. The now what statement that we looked at earlier today, we finish with it today. Your anger won't accomplish what God desires. Instead, hear God's word and then do it. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today. And we are looking at some really in-your-face truth, very convicting, yet not meant to simply bow us over, knock us down, and leave us without hope. Instead, God, this truth, this reality of being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, this is what you've designed, what you've called us to be. And we, God, through your power, through your truth, through your presence, we can be these kind of people. And God, we want to be that because number one, we want to honor you with our lives. But God, number two, we want people in our worlds to see that you are changing us. It will never be perfectly, it will never be completely together, but there is growth. There is change. We're becoming more like Jesus. God, that's who we want to be. Give us more than good feelings about that. Give us action. God, this week, help us to be a people who grow, who make changes in these areas of our lives. If you're here today and you would say, you know, Todd, I I, uh, hear what you're saying. I honestly, my life is completely characterized by anger. And this whole Jesus thing, I've, I've heard about him, but I have never really engaged. I've never really made any kind of commitment to God. I want to tell you that can happen right here and right now. Through the lens of the ABCs, A is to admit. Admit that you're a sinner who's lived on your own terms, not on God's. Be believed, believe that Jesus is the only savior available because you need saving. The C is choose. Choose to say to say, Jesus, I am going to walk your way. I'm going to walk your path. And I want to be a person, God, who you begin to get a hold of and that you begin to transform from the inside out. God, we love you. We're so amazingly grateful for how kind and how patient you are. Thank you. And thank you that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. We want to be a people who live your life this week. We pray in the great name of Jesus.